Okay, thank you. Thank you for coming. And uh, my talk was going to be about keeping up with the medical literature. And I don't know, how long do we go till here? Uh, well, maybe. As long as you want. Oh, really? Until <laughs> <Do> I finish? <laughs> okay, until dinner time. So, okay, we have dinner. Okay. So. <laughs> all right, we'll talk about how to keep up with the medical literature. So, you know, this, I want to start with, a, with an actual example of something that happened to me in clinic. This is a depiction of me in clinic. Uh, it's actually charcoal on canvas. A visiting student was in my clinic and drew this picture for me, which I thought was really quite nice of, nice of her. And uh, I am in clinic every week. Um, I'm missing it this week to be here, but usually I'm in clinic every week. The picture has a few things wrong with it. I actually don't wear a white coat in clinic. I, in the US, I guess we don't, we don't have the nice outfits you all have. Uh, I wear a suit. And uh, the other thing odd about the picture is I actually don't carry a stethoscope. Like any good oncologist, my only physical exam is a PET-CT, so. <laughs> and this day in clinic, I was taking care of a 65-year-old woman with multiple myeloma. The patient was 65. She had multiple myeloma, a blood-based cancer, cancer of the plasma cell. And her sister came in with her. The sister's a younger sister, 60 years old. And it was the sister who asked a very tough question for me. She said, hey, doctor, do you think I should increase the amount of exercise I do so that I don't get multiple myeloma? You see, my sister has multiple myeloma. I'm a healthy 60-year-old woman, but I don't want to get it. After all, my sister has it. Should I increase my exercise? And I asked myself, wow, boy, what do I know about exercise and multiple myeloma? You know, I should be keeping up with the literature. What do I know about exercise and multiple myeloma? So I gave her an answer that I think so many times we do in medicine. If you can't really answer the question, give the best answer you can. So I told her, listen, I always think exercise is helpful. And I would do it for general health and well-being. And I do do that. I do a lot of exercise. And I would particularly do it to lower my risk of cardiovascular disease. But as for doing for multi-myeloma, you know, that's not the reason why I would do it. I think you should do it anyway. You should do more exercise, you know. And then she fired back. But then you read the new study, doctor. Ooh, the new study. Did I read that new study? Ooh, had I read that, had I read that new study? <laughs> and the answer was this was the new study she was talking about. It says getting enough exercise lowers the risk of seven cancers. She had read about it in the American Cancer Society. And sure enough, it was exactly the type of study you would want. It was in the JCO. It's called Amount and Intensity of Leisure Time Physical Activity and Lower Cancer Risk. They took data from nine prospective cohorts, 750,000 people, and they actually had people fill out questionnaires for year after year, how much exercise you do, how much exercise you do. Then 10, 15 years later, they ask, how much cancer do you get? And for 15 types of cancer, they studied, and they found a lower risk, a significantly lower risk in seven of the 15. So my first question was, and maybe John knows the answer, I said, as an oncologist, how many cancers are there? You know? And the answer was, well, the WHO says there's 200 lymphomas, and there's so many cancers. I think maybe 1,000, 2,000 different cancers. They studied 15 cancers. Why these 15? I don't know. But for seven of the 15, they find a beneficial relationship. And I actually looked in this paper, because the patient was asking about multiple myeloma, and I found this figure. And this figure is exactly what she wants to know. Multiple myeloma, the risk of getting incident multiple myeloma. This is the metabolic equivalence hours per week on the x-axis. 
And this is the hazard ratio. One means you're at the exact same risk as, as the baseline, and below one means it's protective, above one means it's harmful. And you can see it's protective. As you do seven and a half, 15, you get to a statistically re significant reduced risk of myeloma. But then like so many things in life, too much of a good thing, it doesn't seem to work so well, you know? It goes back to the baseline. So there you have it, that was the answer. But when I saw this, when I saw this result, my first question was, like any good doctor, what is a MET? I don't know what a MET is, you know, what is the MET? And so I did the honorable thing, I tilted the monitor away from the patient and I looked it up on Wikipedia. And on Wikipedia they have this table. They have this table about METs. So if you do writing at your desk, that's like 1.5 METs, that's called light intensity activity. Then there's moderate intensity activity like walking and then vigorous intensity activity like biking on a flat surface. I like to do a lot of biking in San Francisco. I noticed sexual activity was scored in METs, but it was benchmarked for a 22-year-old. And as an older person, I found that deeply insulting. I found that deeply insulting. Is it higher or lower? <laughs> Maybe more MIs involved. Um, so in the supplement, they actually break apart moderate and vigorous intensity metabolic equivalents. And then they show the relationship is present for moderate intensity but not vigorous intensity. Okay, so now I've gotten to the bottom of the paper. How did I feel? I can go back to the patient's sister and I can tell her, you know, 15 metabolic equivalents, moderate intensity only, don't do 30 metabolic equivalents, and you'll protect yourselves against myeloma, hazard ratio 0.85. You know, I can tell her that, right? But how did I really feel after looking at this? I felt like this. I felt really confused. And I felt confused because, and I also have photos of myself in all emotional states, just in, in case I need it for a talk. Uh, I felt confused because to me it's implausible. You know, I'm happy to believe that exercise is good for you, but why moderate only, why not vigorous, why 15, why not 30? To me it starts to get quite implausible. Then there's the potential for multiple hypothesis testing. How many ways can you look at exercise? You could look at running or biking or swimming. You, how many ways can you slice it? You can look at hours per week, you can look at METs per week, you can look at the intensity of the exercise, and how many different cancers can you look at? I already told you there could be thousands of cancers they're looking at. Why these 15? You know, are these the only ones they looked at? Finally, what about confounding? What if I'm sick with something? I have rheumatoid arthritis or I have obesity. I may be both less likely to exercise and more likely to get cancer, but it's not the exercise leading to the cancer, it's the underlying health that leads to both classic confounding. And what about measurement error? Are we even capturing exercise correctly? It's all based on questionnaires, you know? So if you take all these problems and put it together, my net conclusion was, it's not very credible to me, you know? And also, the first question is, if a sister of somebody with multiple myeloma, are they at even higher risk of getting myeloma than the average person? I think the evidence for that is very weak. They're probably pretty much a baseline population risk. So all of this made me kind of very confused about what to answer her. So I think the best answer is my original answer. Do I believe staying active is part of a healthy life? Yes. Would I do it specifically to avoid myeloma? I don't think so. I would do it as part of general and cardiovascular health. I think that's the best we can give her. So <clears throat> I give you this example because in this talk, I feel like that the situation I was in is the situation we're in all the time, particularly where I practice where somebody comes to you and asks you a question where you're supposed to have read the literature, you're supposed to know about it, but how can anyone do that? We have so many articles coming out all the time. 
How can we read all these things and think about them and pull the supplement and look into it? It's exhausting. So what are some techniques you can do that? Techniques to keep up the literature, studies that are misinterpreted, and maybe how you can be a better reader. <clears throat> I looked this up recently. There are 50 million articles indexed in PubMed. That's more than anyone can read in a lifetime. And they're coming out at a very fast pace. This is a decade old. But you can see that even by 2013, there's 2 million new articles indexed in PubMed a year. So you can't read all the articles. Nobody can say, I'm going to read every article that comes out this week. No one can do it. Even if you only read the article in multiple myeloma, you can't read them all this week. There's just too many. So how do we keep up? We have to make a decision. Even though we see all these articles coming out, I read headlines like this all the time. These are actual titles of journal articles. Replication, duplication, and waste in a quarter million systematic reviews and meta-analyses. The mass production of redundant, misleading, and conflicted systematic reviews and meta-analyses and challenges in irreproducible research. So not only do we have more articles we could ever read in a lifetime, most of them are no good. Most of them are no good, that's what they're telling us. So how are we supposed to manage our day-to-day -day practice? We're busy in clinic, we have to go round in the afternoon, how, and keep up with the literature. I think that's the challenge. <clears throat> I'll skip that. Okay, so I'm going to start with my non-evidence-based way of keeping up. I think John has heard me say this before. <laughs> um, I think it's really important that when you keep up with the literature, you don't give yourself an impossible task. So when I was a student, every time one of the attendings told me about a paper that was important to read, I printed it off, I stapled it, and I took it home and I put it on my nightstand. And I said, you know, this weekend when I get some more time or next week when I go to Curaçao, you know, that's when I'll read the articles, right? But then three years later, I moved apartments and I took that thick stack of articles and I blew the dust off the top and I put it right in the recycling bin. Because if you keep pushing off reading the articles, you're just never going to read the article at all. You go home, you're tired, you just don't have time to read them on vacation. So I think what you need is some system where you read the article a little bit as they come out. Okay, for me, the system I use is to read them in real time. So when I say timing is everything, for instance, Monday, around 10 a.m. Pacific time, oh, probably in the afternoon for you all, Jam Internal Medicine puts out new articles. I like to scroll through that table of contents. And Tuesday, JAMA puts out new articles. This is on the American Medical Association website, probably here around the afternoon, 4 p.m. On Wednesday, today, at 6 p.m. your time, the New England Journal will put out the new articles. They're coming out soon. We'll find out what they say. And then on Thursday, I look to look at JAM Oncology and the Journal of Clinical Oncology. But I, I say just pick one journal. Start by just pick one journal to keep up with. But remember the time they put out the new articles or figure out the time. Because you want to just look through the table of contents right when they came out. I think that's the key thing to keeping up. And the reason is, if you look through and you kind of are familiar with what were Last week's stories, you know, we were just talking at dinner yesterday, what was last week in the New England Journal, what's this week in the New England Journal? You'll find that people are talking about those articles. Oh, they used to talk about them here. This is a water cooler. Before COVID, we would gather around the water cooler, but I guess maybe now we're back to it. We're gathering around the water cooler and we're talking about, oh, did you see that new article that came out? And I think it's so helpful to at least know that it came out. Maybe you skimmed the abstract. You didn't read the whole article, but at least you're aware it came out. Then you hear people talking about it, you can listen in and, and connect it to the article you saw. I also think we're talking about it here. This is Twitter, or X, they call it. 
And in fact, on some articles, the moment the article comes out, you know, people are going to be talking about it on social media. And there are some people you follow long enough that you can really count on for a really impartial look at the, the article. For me in cardiology, I like John Mandrola and Venk Morthy, you know, for, um, uh, I'll have to think more about some other examples, but you know, there's people I like in every, oh, for opioids, I like Waleed Jalad from Pittsburgh. You know, there's people I like, for drug cost, I like Stacey Dusitzina, who's now in Vanderbilt. So you find people that you really like on certain themes, and then if you see a cardiology article came out, well, the first person who I want to look at is John Mandrola's feed and see, did he say anything about it? So now I'm building a connection between the article, I just skimmed the abstract maybe, and then you know, what he's saying about it. And so I can see, oh, does he have a critical point to make? Oh, this is not my slide. Hmm. I feel like my thing got flipped around. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, okay, okay, okay. All right. Their slides are in there somewhere. Okay, so I want to give you one example, maybe more examples, depending on how you feel, of this actual process. Okay. So this is one that I, I told John I was going to talk about. Does anyone know this drug, Entresto? Yeah. Have you prescribed it? Yeah. Cardiologists. Cardiologists prescribe it. It's very expensive, you know that? It's not a cheap drug. We used to give ACE inhibitors, which are cheap, and ARBs, which are cheap. Now we give this, which is very expensive. Okay, it's Secubitril Valsartan. Valsartan is cheap. The Secubitril part is the expensive part. That's a patented Novartis drug. Okay, has anyone here heard me talk about this before? Anyone? Just you, okay, good. All right, so it'll be a surprise for you. All right, so I remember where I was, September 11th, 2014. It was a Wednesday, obviously. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. So it's a Wednesday, 5 p.m. I was looking at the articles, and I see this angiotensin neprilysin inhibitor versus enalapril in heart failure. And I said, am I, gonna, am I actually going to look more at this article? And I thought to myself, well, I was a hematology oncology fellow. I think I was, uh, I, was a third, I was in my last year of training. But I was recently in general medicine clinic in the States. We do general medicine for a few years. I took care of so many patients with heart failure. And in 20 years, there had not been a single new heart failure medication. And now I see there's something in the New England Journal, and it looks really promising because this is the overall survival curve of the drug. LCZ696, it sounds like a license plate, that's the drug, Entresto, versus enalapril, this is all-cause mortality. You know, hazard ratio 0.84, looks pretty good. There's a saying in oncology, if you can fit the laser pointer between the curves, you can give the plenary at the national meeting, here you can fit five or six laser pointers. This is, for oncology standards, very good. Very good. So, you know, it caught my attention. In 20 years, no advance in heart failure. And now we finally get one. So I wanted to read this article. So when I read an article, I never read it cover to cover. I always say, if you want to fall asleep, try to read that article cover to cover. I have a question in my mind, and I look through the article and I find the answer. Then I have a different question, I find the answer. And then maybe eventually I'll read the whole article if I have to do a journal club on it. But first I want to answer my questions. My questions are always simple. What was the intervention? I want to be able to tell you what they did. And the intervention here is a combination pill of Valsartan plus Secubitril. Is the control arm what you would have done? You know, a randomized trial can only change your practice if the control arm is your practice. 
So in this case, would I normally give somebody an allopril, 10 milligrams BID? I don't know. We'll come back to that. What was the effect size? Companies are chasing statistically significant uh, effects, but we care about clinically meaningful effects. How big is the effect? Is it meaningful? Does it matter? I would say that overall mortality benefit is big. You know, that caught my eye. Is it a clinical or surrogate endpoint? You know, A1C, uh, LDL cholesterol, those are surrogate endpoints. Patients don't care about them until we tell them to care about them. Clinical endpoints are living longer, living better. Here we have living longer. Okay, what happened after the trial ended? Any games with patient selection? These are the questions I ask. So let's go through this. So it's Secubitril. This is a new drug, an inhibitor of neprilysin. And they pair it with Valsartan 160 milligrams BID. The first thought I have when I look at that, I say, that's a, wow, that's a high dose of Valsartan. I actually had never, I've never put a patient on a dose that high in my life. In fact, I get lightheaded even thinking of that dose. That's a hefty dose. So my first thought was that was a very hefty dose. I also knew one thing, that people had previously tried neprilysin inhibitors in heart failure, and it was a, a single drug, omeprilot, combination neprilysin and ACE inhibitor, but it, <coughs> failed out, it failed in testing because of angioedema. And so I figured because of the angioedema, they probably use ARB and not ACE, because ACE has angioedema. Now, what is the control arm of this study? Well, my first thought was, you know, it would make sense to me. You take 10,000 people, maybe New York heart, two, three, four heart failure. You take the people who are ACE intolerant, which is about, you know, a fifth of them. And you randomize the ACE intolerant people to secubitril valsartan or valsartan. And you get a clean, randomized trial. You know, does the secubitril add anything? And so I said, oh, that must be what they did. But of course, that's not what they did. They randomized against enalapril, 10 milligrams BID. I said, Okay, is the control arm what I like to give? I don't think I have a single patient on enalapril because it's a twice-day medication. So I wasn't giving a lot of enalapril. And then I noticed something about the dose. This is the maximum FDA-approved dose, 160 BID. Package label says 160 BID, cannot give any more. Enalapril package label, it's half maximum. You can give 20 BID. Okay, so brand new drug. This is the patented drug. This drug is the key to this whole drug success paired with maximum dose ARB against half dose ACE inhibitor. There's a difference in blood pressure in this trial. Is it the secubitril or could you have just cranked up the ACE inhibitor? I don't know. Why is it half dose? I don't understand this. And then why is this maximum? Then I looked at the trial a little bit more. I said, okay, so you took 10,000 people, you randomized them, secubitril, valsartan, or nalapril. Simple randomized study, right? This makes sense. But that's not what they did. They did all this stuff in the consort figure, all this stuff. Now, I can't read that, so I made it very simple. They took 10,000 people with New York Heart 234 heart failure, and they made them stop whatever ACE or ARB they were taking at baseline. Stop it. And then take enalapril, 10 milligrams BID, for two weeks. And in those two weeks, 1,000 people could not take that drug. 1,000 people fell out of the study, discontinued the study. Some people died, had heart failure exacerbation, but they couldn't take the drug. And then, if you survived that step one, you take secubitril valsartan for 28 days, twice the length of time. The first 14 days, you take 80 milligrams of valsartan a day. And then the second 14 days, you take 160 because now it's half maximum, maximum dose. And in that period of time, another thousand people fall off the study. So this is called a double drug run-in period of unequal periods of time. The longer you run in on a drug before you randomize, the more you benefit that arm because you remove people who are idiosyncratically intolerant to that medication, and they're getting twice as long on their drug. And then, and only then, do you randomize. 
And remember, the trial only measures endpoints from randomization to the outcome. All these people are lost to time. We don't know what happened to them. And they're not included in the study. Only from randomization to the outcome. If you take the experimental drug here, whatever drug you took Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you take Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. If you take the control arm, whatever drug you took Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you switch to an allopril 10 milligrams BID Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So if there's any penalty for switching, imagine these are all the same, they all work the same, but every time you switch a medicine, the patient gets thrown out of equilibrium, that penalty is being paid by the control arm. The control arm gets a half maximum dose, the control arm gets less run in time, the intervention arm gets more ARB dose, more run in time, and they continue at randomization. All of the strategic advantages go to their intervention arm. I had this crazy thought as I read the paper. Remember I told you that the trial says you can only give 10 milligrams of enalapril twice a day, but the FDA label says you can give 20 twice a day, right? Half the dose. I said, these trials, they don't recruit the average person with heart failure. They recruit like the superhuman heart failure. All the trials recruit like the very best patients with any disease, typically. There must have been somebody in that study who was taking 40 milligrams a day of enalapril, and they get randomized to enalapril, now they only take 20, which is bad because we know with ACEs and ARBs, cardiologists have long taught us that if you increase the dose, you get better outcomes, right? In fact, the same, the PI of this study was the guy who proved that in a circulation paper. So my question was, how many people took a higher dose of enalapril before they even got randomized? Well, how can I find that out? In the supplement, it says this. It says the four most commonly used ACE inhibitors at the screening visit, one of them was enalapril, only in 2,000 of the 8,000 people, and the mean dose was 16.4, and the standard deviation was 8.3. So now I said, ah, I got him. Because I can create a normal distribution and I can put the mean of 16.4, standard deviation 8.3, and I can ask, how many people would have been over 20 if we assumed that, that drug dosing was normally distributed? And the answer is one in three people were taking a higher dose of enalapril at baseline if we assume these two values in their, in their supplement. But this is an approximation, it's not exactly right. And somebody heard me give this talk, this gentleman, and he said, oh, Dr. Prasad, you're making a simple simplification. You're thinking this drug can be dosed like a IV medicine, but it's a pill. It only comes in certain sizes. And actually, in order to create the distribution with the size, you would obviously use this equation, right? Which I, I knew it. I, I didn't want to show off, but you know, you'd use something like this and solve it. Of course, a simple equation like that. And what he says basically, he thinks it's as high as about 15%. We're taking a higher dose at baseline. Actually, there's, no one, there's not one unique solution. The company knows the answer, but this is one of many solutions. And what I would argue to you is, this is at baseline before a doctor tried to crank up the dose. At least one in six people was taking a higher dose at baseline, but if I tried to push the dose, I think I could have pushed maybe 20, 30% higher than 10 milligrams BID. So what's my point here? All of the things about this trial are unfair. I'm gonna make two more points. I asked Rosa on. She was a medical student at Oregon when I was thinking about this study. I said, can you get every single cardiology drug ever approved uh, in the last decade? She said, yeah, 46 drugs, 141 trials. I said, how many use a design like this, A plus B versus C, this trial? You know? And there's only one, or sorry, there's only two trials. One is this one, and then the other one is, does anyone know a cardiology drug that's two drugs put together against, tested against a third one? It's isosorbide hydralazine, 
Bidil tested against enalapril. Yeah. So that was the other one. But in that case, the FDA made them do a confirmatory study. And here, the FDA didn't make them do a confirmatory study. And then she asked, how many trials have a run-in period and no run-in period? And they don't tell us about run-in period, but no trial has ever had a double drug run-in period of unequal periods of time. Okay, so a few more data points. We wrote an article in Circulation where we said, this trial is approved based on one study, but it's got a lot of problems. One, you're testing max dose ARB plus the new drug against half dose ACE. Two, you have an unequal drug run-in period of time. Three, the control arm has to switch. You don't have to switch. Four, some people were tolerating and taking a higher dose of enalapril at baseline, proving you could have pushed the dose. And if you put all this together, um, I think we need a new study. The PI, and we wrote this paper in circulation, said we need another study. Confirmatory trials are needed. The PI said we have so many zeros in our p-value, it's like four studies put together. But I think he misunderstands the purpose of the study. The purpose of the study is not to just improve your p-value. In other words, to show that these results are extremely unlikely under the null hypothesis. The purpose of two studies is to ask, is it really the secubitril that's responsible for the benefit? Or is it the higher dose of the ARB? Or is it the run-in period? Or is it the dose escalation? Or is it the lack of switching? Not the secubitril. And the reason that matters is 10, 15 billion dollars of a reason why that matters. If it's a secubitril, they make $15 billion. And if it's not, it's minus $770 million. So it has to be the secubitril. And we don't know. And since then, we've had Paragon where, oh, it didn't work uh, in preserved ejection fraction. Oh, that's OK. But what about Paradise? Am I, oh, it didn't work after myocardial infarction, unlike pretty much every other drug used in low ejection fraction. And then what about Life RCT? Oh, it didn't reduce pro-NTBNP. It's actually not good. It doesn't work in any other situation. It didn't work in. It didn't work in Paragon or Paradise or Life or Pioneer. Well, Pioneer, it met some terrible endpoint. Okay. Ah, that's not what I want to say. Okay, so I will conclude with my point on this. When you, my conclusion on this, on this drug is the following. When you talk about the flozins, empagliflozin, depagliflozin, there's so many flozins you talk about. Every day I hear about a new flozin. You guys know a few flozins, right? But when you talk about the bitril, do you ever hear of any other bitril than secubitril? No. So my question is, which is more likely? This is the amazing secubitril drug that has this beautiful patent that makes them very rich. And it only works with max dose ARB in this very careful study. All the other trials are negative, but it really does work for low ejection fraction heart failure. Really works there, even though no other company has ever made a drug in the same class and brought it to market. Or is it something that just got one win because of the worst trial design I've ever seen? Double drug run in period, unequal periods of time, penalizing the control arm. And that's my conclusion. And uh, I think it's not good. I think we've spent, as a society, so much money on this, and we have no clue. Then the final point I make to you is, not a single one of you in this room has ever given the dose that's tested in that study. Because the bottle dose is not the dose in that study, and nobody gets the max dose of this product. So we have no idea that the doses we're giving, if it has any effect that's any better than just increasing the ACE inhibitor a little bit. And I think this is what we spend our money on in the United States, certainly. And sadly, I think even in places where money matters, where we need to be better stewards of money. Okay, I can do some more examples or I could stop and take some questions. I just want to make one more point. Yes, go ahead. Our problem is, well, not my problem, but the problem that we face because of cardiology is that they uh, now refer to their guidelines. Yes. And it's in their guidelines. So 
actually I don't understand how the uh, people that made the guidelines, not only the, uh, AM, uh, the uh, American Heart, but also the European, they just put it in, in the guidelines. Yes. So it's in the guidelines. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So I would say a few things. So who failed here? Okay, who made the failure? Do I blame the company? No. They need to make money. The tiger wants to eat. It's our job to put the tiger in the bars. You know, we can't, we can't blame the tiger for letting him roam around the village. Okay, that's, so the company is actually off the hook. FDA. FDA should never allow this trial design. This trial design is crazy. Just do a simple first take ACE intolerant patients randomized to Valsartan, Valsartan plus Secubitril. In fact, make Secubitril its own pill. You don't need to combine it with Valsartan. Why should it be combined? Make it its own pill. Test it as an individual drug. See if there's a benefit in the people who are ACE intolerant. Of course, it's not as much money for the company, but that's the cleanest scientific study. No drug run-in period, nothing. Take people on an ARB. In fact, they can be on any ARB. Why does it have to be Valsartan? You take anybody on any ARB, add Secubitril or placebo. Simple study. Okay, FDA failed. Two, the FDA allowed them to run this study. The FDA should have at least made them do two studies, like they did for uh, Bidil, that drug in the past. So I think FDA total failure. Uh, I don't know why, the, I mean, I know why they do it. We could talk about at length, but I think they're, they're not good stewards. Once US FDA does it, everyone in the globe will follow. EMA will follow, Health Canada will follow, the Japanese will follow, and once all the regulatory agencies approve something, that narrative will sort of sink in. Then the cardiology guidelines. Who sits on the committees to write the guidelines? The same people who work with Novartis every single day. You know, they take payments from Novartis, they work with Novartis, they have to do the trials with Novartis, so of course, when Novartis comes with, and then they say the p-value has 11 zeros in it, which it, I think it does have 11 zeros in it, that the benefit is so big, that this is clearly the first advance in 20 years. They keep telling you, you know, the first advance in 20 years. What are they gonna say? Are they to say that, well, we're concerned for all these reasons? And then the truth is, there's never gonna be a confirmatory study. They already have all the money. They got the market share. So the guidelines, I think, are total failure. The societies, I think, are, are failing us. And who pays the price? I think, you know, if you're in a country like this where you have to decide where every dollar should be spent and somebody's spending $10 on this, that's $10 that could be spent for so many better things, you know? Spend a nickel on increasing the ACE inhibitor dose and take the $9.95 and spend it on something else. And I think that's the, that's the huge challenge. What about, because it's more or less science, right? Or non-science, or yeah. whatever you want to may call it. But what about the role of the journal itself? Uh, yeah, terrible journal. Yeah, so who, the, it's the same problem as the guidelines because the journals are asking, they don't ask anybody to review the article. They need to ask a, a respected cardiologist. There's only so many respected cardiologists. They tend to work with the companies. They all cut of the same pool. Uh, in this case, I think the journal, uh, no, one more point. The journal's goal is to publish articles that will get cited. That's their number one goal. They want the citations. And this article, whether you love it or hate it, it's all, it was destined to get 15,000, 20,000 citations in 10 years. This is a gold article. Every journal wants this article because it's gonna boost your impact factor for a decade. So there, if anything, you'll accept shortcomings as a journal editor because you need to boost the impact factor. Okay, so that's another problem. Uh, I think the quality of New England Journal, you know, he knows I make a whole podcast where we just dissect the article. So I think the journal fails too. Okay. Yes. This medicine is international market that here under the name of Vimada. But Vimada comes in different levels of Valsartan, not with the 160 million. Exactly, yes. And yeah. th those, those levels that it comes in have never been studied. There is no study of those levels. Like when you take a person on whatever, let's say he's on 10 of lisinopril, you stop the lisinopril, put him on this drug at that level, there's no study that guides that. That's just 
they've trained us to do that. We do that in the US too. I can't cite any data to support that choice. So I think we have a whole other paper we're working on. Yes? So if the system is wrong, how are we going to change it, especially without getting depressed? Well, I'd say that... You caused the depression. <laughs> I caused the depression. I would say that, um, I don't know, there's, there's, so many levels, there's so many levels we could fix it at. Okay, your job is not, no one's job is to fix the whole world. You know, I know somebody who, she says she has trouble sleeping because of climate change. I said, you know, forgive yourself a little bit. You know, it's not on you only, your burden, you know, it's on everybody's burden, okay? So in this case, I'd say the first thing we can do as doctors is I think what, you know, I've talked to John a lot. I think he tries very hard that every decision he makes, he wants to think both about the person in front of him and about the next two people in the lobby, you know, to make the best decision. And what that means is he has some work to do. He's not going to go home every day and watch TV. He's going to go home some days and read some articles and think about it and listen to some podcast so he can try to do better at his, at his job, his craft. So I think that's the first thing we can do. The next thing we can do, I think, is when people tell us what to believe and think. When you go to the meetings and the conferences, they offer to fly you, take you to dinner, buy you drinks. Uh, I think you have, to, you have to be very skeptical of that. They're, all, they're very nice people. I mean, it's not the problem of the system. Everyone who works in the company is a nice and good person. But the system is a, is a systemic failure, and as a doctor, we need to be a one step skeptical. Okay, then I think the next level is the regulators. I think the regulators, the only way to solve them is through the politicians. And now it gets dirty, you know? Now it gets messy, because politics is a messy business. And then, if you really feel passionate about it, I think you can try to publish some papers or write a book about, you know, these kinds of things to try to change a few people's minds. One person here, one person there. But then ultimately, why am I optimistic? I'm optimistic for a pessimistic reason. UK spend, US spending on healthcare is 19% GDP. Switzerland is 11% GDP. How can a society spend 19% GDP on healthcare? Okay, what we're not spending on, the food they serve kids in schools, we're not spending it there. Our roads, our bridges are collapsing. You can't take a train in our country for anywhere, you know, can't go travel anywhere. The quality of the urban life is getting worse. Um, prenatal nutrition is terrible. The average American eats horrible. Our, our lifestyle is from car to, to couch to car. We're not spending on any of those things. We're spending on healthcare. And most of the healthcare we're spending on is like Entresto, in my opinion. Things that sound good and flashy have no credible basis to be given. Uh, I think the thing that gives me optimism is we can't continue forever. What will happen when it's 25%, 30% GDP? They say Rome fell when 50% of the days in Rome were holidays. I think US will fall when 40% of GDP is on healthcare. You know, the whole country will sink. So somebody has to do something about it. And I think there is an increasing pressure in the US. But I'll say one thing. Yesterday, on Twitter, I was looking, and there's a very sad story of a woman. I'm going to tell this story. It's a very sad story. It's a very young woman who has small cell lung cancer. And I think it, they called it stage four, but we typically stage it as limited and extensive. Limited means it fits in one radiation port, and extensive is two ports. I think she's probably two ports. I think it sounds to me like it's bilateral small cell lung cancer. She got treated with some things, we don't exactly know why or what, and then Vanderbilt Medical Center has offered her a double lung transplant to take somebody else's lung and transplant it into her and put immunosuppressives on for life for small, extensive stage small cell lung cancer. And then at the last minute, the insurance company said no. And the first thing I wanna say is, I'm no fan of the insurance companies. I think they do a terrible job. Uh, I also think that to say yes and then the last minute say no is very cruel. 
But the mere idea that we would transplant lungs for a small cell lung cancer, which is always microscopically metastatic at baseline, even in the limited stage, mostly microscopically metastatic, but certainly in extensive stage, and then put someone on immunosuppressants, you may even shorten her life. And you may make her life miserable when you put her on that. And lung transplant is not an easy, it's not, this is not a kidney transplant. And this is the conversation we're having in the US where many people are outraged. Why did they say no? We're so far from, somebody asked the question about drawing the labs. Sometimes my fellow says, you know, should we really send the folic acid level? I say, this patient over here, we just spent $380,000 on maintenance brentuximab after, after transplant for Hodgkin's with no survival benefit, a PFS, we spent $400,000 and you're asking me about a $2 lab test? I was like, we're, we've lost, I mean, I agree with you. These things matter too. But the things we're spending on in the US are so horrific double lung transplants, drugs that don't work, and we're dropping half a million dollars. Meanwhile, I have a patient with Alzheimer's. I need somebody to come to her house to help her with the dishes. There's no money for that. You know, you get money. My, my core belief of American medicine is that anything that takes money from society and consolidates it in the hands of shareholders of companies, we will always pay for. But anything that takes money from society and distributes it to lots of home health aides and nurses and respiratory techs, we will never pay for. Because it is a system to move money around with the rare adverse event of occasionally improving human health. And I think that's my cynical view. But it, I think, it, I think there is a pressure point where it's coming to. All right, yes? Yeah, you said um, you actually know why the FDA fails. Yes. Um, and I'm interested in, in why. Because shouldn't they be the first to um, you know, keep the uh, tiger from roaming around, as you said? Yes. Okay, so why does the FDA fail? In my opinion, I would say that, uh, let's just take oncology. If you graduate with a hemonc degree, you can make like, lots of money in private practice. If you're a professor like me, you make a lot less. And if you work at FDA, you make even less than what I would make as a professor. So one is their reimbursement is low. So it's not, they don't entice the, you know, they don't, it's not the easy sell to the oncology fellow. The fellow has been training from the age of 18 to, you know, whatever, maybe 40 or something in our country. They keep training, training, training. And then the first job, do you want to get the lowest paying job? Okay, so that, that's one challenge. I, I think they should pay them more so that they can get like the most, they get a comp competition for it. Then here's the biggest challenge with FDA. If you work at FDA, very, uh, I would say this, not everyone works there for their whole career. Some people work there for three years or five years and then they switch and work somewhere else. Can you guess the number one place they go to work when they stop working at FDA or EMA? The number one place they go to work is where? Pharma. Pharma. So in fact, we published a paper in BMJ where we show it's like 65, 70% of people go to pharma. So my question though is it's a fundamental tension because if, if there is a 70% chance I'm going to go work at Curacao, when I come here to give you the lecture, I'm going to try to do a very good job and want you to be happy because there's a 70% chance I might come work for you someday, right? And then let's say you say something that I disagree with. I'll say, oh, that's okay. You know, uh, well, you know, I think that's just human nature. So I think the structural failure of FDA is the revolving door is so pronounced. And it's not just drugs. We just got some, there's just a news article this week about the top two official in, F, or not top two, but two senior officials in FDA vaccine. They were policing Mo Moderna has an obligation to look for heart inflammation in young boys. That study has never been, or that study is pending. And those two people went to go work for Moderna from FDA. To, you know, so this revolving door happened. Scott Gottlieb was the commissioner. He's the board of director of Pfizer. You know? So this thing, that's I think the problem with FDA. Okay. Is that, yeah. 
as long as you have that revolving door, the incentives are not to be very tough. There's one thing we probably yes. believe in, in here is the fact that maybe you didn't mention it, but <clears throat> we think we can also address the system by better educating our young doctors. Yes. Not the older ones. <laughs> well, the old dogs don't learn new tricks. Uh, so, but I agree with that. That's that's been, I think, when I started, I, 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 when I started, I felt very lonely. But now, I think there's at least five or six young oncologists doing work similar to what I started to do six years ago. Yes. You can solve our problem this uh, this Thursday because there's a meeting with the cardiology, with a nice dinner about about protocols and stuff. Should I come? Um, and if you just give this talk in 15 minutes, you will solve our problem. <laughs> all the cardiologists will be together. But you will never be invited again. <laughs> I will invite you. I'm not one of the guys. I was not going to come here. If there's a 70% chance, I'll be back. No. Um, well, uh, you know, sometimes it's, mm -hmm. it's the hardest to give it to the audience that's the toughest. I once gave like, talks like this in front of a pharmaceutical company audience. But sometimes it's the most satisfying because they ask the toughest questions and then you can try to push back with the best answers. So I'm happy to do it if they want to hear it, but um, they may not, we'll see. Off the record, a few years ago at the American Heart Association, there was a, the scientific sessions. I was supposed to debate the PI of this study on Entresto, on the center stage, and it was re scheduled for debate, but then Novartis became a major sponsor of AHA and they canceled the session. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. If you have time, again, thanks again. Thank you.